You're listening to the Radio Cafe Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. I was really excited about doing today's show, an interview with linguist and cognitive scientist Lara Boroditsky, because she really makes the case for the proposition that our language, the language that we speak, the various languages that we might speak, affect the way we think. And this was particularly interesting to me because last year I had another linguist on the air named John McWhorter who made the case, the opposite case, that language really doesn't affect so much how we think. We think the same no matter what language we speak. That interview is also available at scienceradiocafe.org, so you can check it out, listen to both of them. But right now, let's just go to the interview. I'm very happy now to welcome Lara Boroditsky. She's a professor of cognitive science at the University of California, San Diego. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So we are talking today about linguistics and the question of whether and how language influences the way we think. This is not a new question, I take it. This has been around for a long time. Sure. People have been speculating about this question for centuries. So you have Charlemagne. Mong. Uh, Holy Roman Emperor saying um, to have a second language is to have a second soul. One of his successors, Charles V, said uh, a man who knows four languages is worth four men. That's quite a strong statement, something to put on your resume if you're (laughs) multilingual. So people have been expressing opinions on this for a really long time. Uh, What has been lacking throughout all these centuries has been real empirical evidence that would show us whether it's really true and uh, if so, to what extent language shapes thought and how. And so it must be at least to some extent tricky to test this because language is embedded in in culture, in place, in land, in families, all kinds of things. How do you do that kind of empirical testing? That's a really important question. Of course, language is part of culture. It's situated in a tradition in a place. And so whenever you compare two groups of people who speak different languages, it's not just that they speak different languages, they also participate in very different cultural practices often, and they have different histories. And so what we're always looking for are some ways to directly manipulate language and see if just by changing the way people talk, you can change the way they think. So often we'll start by doing a cross-cultural comparison where we'll compare, for example, English speakers and Mandarin speakers in some task and show that both in the language and in some non-linguistic behavior, they differ. But then what we'll do is take the bit of Mandarin that we think is important and teach that to English speakers. And so bring people in, teach them one way of talking or the opposite way of talking and see how that changes the way they think. So that's the cleanest experimental way to really, in the lab, tweak language and see what consequences it has. But there are also lots of other ways that people have tried to get at the question. So for example, you can take people who are bilingual and test them in one language or the other. Or you can take um, people and get them to do a task while you interfere with their ability to use language. So you kind of tie up their linguistic resources and you see how that changes cognition. Or you can look at people who are growing up in a cultural context but don't have access to language. So for example, people who are growing up deaf and don't have access to their prevailing linguistic environment. To what extent do they look like the speakers of the language in that culture, or do they look different because they don't have access to the language? Okay, but so you're (laughs) talking about all these things. We want to know what you found in each one of these things. Like, let's go back to the Mandarin example. Sure. So 
let me start by describing the cross-linguistic difference. So in English, a lot of the ways that we talk about time uses spatial metaphor. So we say things like the best is ahead of us, the worst is behind us, let's move the meeting forward. And these words like ahead, behind, forward are horizontal spatial terms. And it's very common actually to talk this way across languages. Mandarin also uses spatial metaphors and they also use front, back, horizontal terms to talk about time. But in addition, Mandarin also very commonly uses vertical metaphors. So for example, the up month is the last month and the down month is the next month. So the past is up and the future is down. And so we wondered first, does that mean that Mandarin speakers have this active mental timeline in their minds that's vertical in addition to the horizontal ones? So do they really think of the past as being above and the future as being below? And we did a bunch of experiments where either we asked people to point where they would put different locations and times. So if I tell you that right in front of your body is today, where would you put yesterday? Where would you put tomorrow? Or uh, we gave them these very tricky tasks where they have to press buttons as quickly as possible to respond whether something is earlier or later. And the earlier button is either above or below. And we can measure how quickly you can do that um, depending on where, where we've placed the buttons. And what we find in all of those experiments is that English speakers have a very strong horizontal mental timeline. So in all kinds of tasks, you can see English speakers are laying out time on the horizontal plane. Uh, and Mandarin speakers also show evidence of that, but they also have a very strong vertical mental timeline where the past is above and the future is below, just like in the metaphors in the language. And so then we come back to your question, how do we know that this difference in behavior comes from differences in metaphors? It could come from any other source. Um, and so then we bring our English speakers, our students, into the lab and we teach them new metaphors. So we might say, in this way of talking, Monday is above Tuesday and Tuesday is above Wednesday, or the reverse. For another half of the students, they get the opposite. So Monday is below Tuesday and Tuesday is below Wednesday. And then after we've taught them this, we put them into our same tricky little tasks where they have to make judgments about time as quickly as possible, pressing buttons. And what we see is just by learning to talk about time in this funny new way, placing the future either above or below, they've now acquired a new mental timeline. So even when they're doing a task that doesn't involve language at all, they're starting to look the way that Mandarin speakers look. And depending on which metaphors they learned, they're placing the future either above or below in their mind. And you have written about Aymara speakers for whom the future is behind them metaphorically and the and the past is ahead of them, which made me think about like hindsight being twenty twenty. Like mm -hmm. you can see your past more easily than your future. But what is this, like, what is the significance of this in how people think, how people conceptualize, how that plays out as a cultural difference that's meaningful? So the reason I got into studying how people think about time is that time is one of these wonderful puzzles. On the one hand, it's at the very core of our experience. We can't experience anything outside of time. But on the other hand, it's ineffable. You can't see time, you can't feel time, you can't smell time, you can't touch it. And so it's posed this philosophical puzzle for centuries. How do we come to think about these abstract things that we don't have direct physical experience with? How do we build these ideas? So how do humans come up with ideas like time travel 
or justice or ideas or principles, these very abstract notions. And so one suggestion, a suggestion that came from George Lakoff and uh, many of his colleagues, is that the way we build these abstract ideas is by using metaphor, extending knowledge of the physical world to build more abstract knowledge. And so the way we understand time, for example, is by taking metaphors in language, saying things like, we're approaching the deadline, and thinking then of time as a path that we can travel. And because of that metaphor and language, that analogy allows us to scaffold an idea of time that goes beyond what we can actually experience. Right? So that's one way that you could build an idea like time travel, for example, is that not by yourself traveling in time, but by following that metaphor towards logical conclusion. If you say, okay, we're approaching the deadline, or we're coming up on the holidays, time is a path that I can travel. Well, if time is a path, a path I can travel in any direction, whatever speed I want. So now I can think, I can conceive of this idea of time travel, even though it's well beyond what I could ever experience. Um, so at the crux of these studies about time is this question of how humans build complex knowledge in general, and what is what are the ingredients that go into the building of this uh, complex knowledge. And the fact that you can test it across languages just gives you a way of seeing that language is uh, a key ingredient in building that knowledge. So if your language chooses a different set of metaphors, you're actually going to end up with different mental timelines, with different private mental understandings of this fundamental domain of time. When you talk about the people, Mandarin Chinese speakers, who think of time going from top to bottom. First of all, that kind of reminds me of the calendar on my wall, mm -hmm. right? Because that, that's sure. a vertical thing. But, I mean, gravity also goes, I mean, we're falling down rather than ascending in terms of our relationship to the earth. Do people who think of time from up to down have more trouble with time travel because <laughs> I mean you can't it's you know you can walk a path either direction but you can't really go back up yeah you would uh, it's a it's a good uh, it's a good question of whether uh, it's harder to travel in a direction that's against gravity so whether traveling to the past would be harder than say traveling to the future it's a nice hypothesis I don't know <laughs> yeah yeah we don't know the answer to that it's a it's a it's a fun idea to test there are, of course, lots of other ways that time can go around the world. So I've uh, given you just some simple examples that put time with respect to the body. But there are also groups that don't lay out time with respect to the body. So, for example, I had a chance to work with an Aboriginal community in Australia, the Kuktaior, and they don't lay out space using words like left and right, and instead they use north, south, east, and west as their main directions. And when we asked how do folks like that lay out time? What we found was that they lay out time from east to west. So, like following the sun. For them, it's following the sun. So, if the, if they're sitting facing, if a person's sitting facing south, and you ask them to arrange a set of cards that say show a man aging, um, they lay those cards out from left to right. But if they're sitting facing north, they'll lay those cards out from right to left. And if they're facing east, they'll lay the cards out coming towards their body. And if they're sitting on a diagonal, then they'll lay them out on a diagonal. So again, it follows from east to west. And so that is a qualitatively different way of organizing time, not at all with respect to my body, but rather with respect to the landscape, to the earth. It's still a line. It is still a line, but 
You know, it turns out that it doesn't have to be a straight line. So work by Rafael Nunez and Kenzie Cooperwriter with um, the Yupno in Papua New Guinea shows that time can have a bend. So for example, for the Yupno, time rolls into the village at one angle, and then once it hits the village, it takes a turn and rolls out of the village at a different angle. And this has to do with where the mouth and the source of the Yupno River are. So those are important locations for the Yupno, and that's how they organize time with respect to those two locations. One of the things that's so interesting about the example of the Aboriginal people in Australia, whom you just mentioned, is that they also have incredible navigational abilities mm-hmm. like they they because they don't use right and left they use absolute directions north south east and west they always know exactly where they are in space i mean in an absolute way mm-hmm. yeah in order to speak the languages like that you have to be oriented languages like this are actually very common around the world about a third of the world's languages have this property they use cardinal directions of some sort to organize space and in cook tire you say things like there's an ant on your southwest leg, or move your cup to the north-northeast a little bit, or even just to greet someone to say hello. In English, we say, how are you? Fine. In Kuktaio, you say, which way are you heading? And the answer should be something like uh, north-northeast in the far distance. How about you? And so imagine as you're navigating the world, you have to constantly report your heading direction to everyone you meet that would get you oriented very quickly. It creates a very strong social requirement to be oriented. It's also, I mean, we have the cardinal directions and we have right and left. Mm-hmm. We choose to use right and left. Although I did, somebody was telling me, I'm, I was trying to remember who this was so I could tell you about people they knew in the American Midwest who would say things like, you know, the the cookies are on the north side of the fridge, mm-hmm. you know, because they, they really do think more that way mm-hmm. than people like who live in cities and have no idea. But it strikes me that if you live this way linguistically, where your point of reference is completely the cardinal directions, that ability that you have is as much about what's missing from the language, namely right and left, than what the language is. And I wondered, like, if, you know, if you taught the kids to do right and left instead of north and south, would they be less able to navigate? I don't think they would be less able to navigate. I don't think it's one or the other. Humans certainly have a lot of extra uh, cognitive capacity that they can use. And lots of languages, just as you point out, use both sets of reference frames. In English, the way it's spoken in modern day, even though we have words like north, south, east, and west, we don't use them very precisely. And uh, we also use them often metaphorically for things that are not spatial. Like we can say someone makes north of $200,000 or uh, things went south from there. And in languages that use those words really for their absolute meanings, they don't extend them metaphorically that way because they really insist on those precise meanings of the words. And when you think about highways, uh, I don't know what it's like in New Mexico, but in California, highways that are said to run north-south really do not run north-south, right? They run northwest or southeast. And so when I say I'm getting on the 101 north, not I don't really mean north. And in general, you're not required to use those words precisely. So uh, one puzzle I like to give my students is to ask them, which is further west, Reno, Nevada, or San Diego, California? Everyone says, of course, it's San Diego, California is further west. Of course, it's a puzzle because 
it's actually Reno <laughs> that's further west. But people have a really hard time imagining how that could be true because the California coast comes at an angle. It doesn't actually run north-south the way people imagine it. And I just give you that example because we, we sometimes feel like we have a really good idea where north, south, east, and west are. But when you take people outside and ask them to point, they're shockingly confused. And I've done this little experiment hundreds of times where I'll ask everyone in the lecture hall to close their eyes and point southeast. And often the people I'm asking to do this have gone to that same lecture hall for the last 40 years, a couple times a week. And so they should be very familiar with their environment. They should be able to do it. And people just point in every possible direction. <laughs> and so the mere existence of terms in a language doesn't tell you exactly what people will be able to do cognitively. What matters is uh, how are you actually expected to use those terms by other people in your language? Are you expected to use them precisely? And even being asked a question like, which way are you going as a greeting isn't going to be a predictor of whether or not people stay oriented because it depends on what answer you're expected to give. So for example, in Indonesia, people often ask, which way are you going? And as I'm walking the street, lots and lots of people will ask me, Kimana, Mau Kimana, where are you going? But the right answer to give is uh, jalan jalan, uh, for a walk, or makanangin, uh, uh, just eating the wind. They don't, they're not actually asking me for my heading direction. But if they were expecting a heading direction, then I would be required to think about it and keep track of it and remember it. As a linguist, do you is, is part of the deal that you have to speak lots of different languages? <laughs> no, you don't have to. It's fun. It's fun to learn. Uh, it's certainly fun to learn to speak languages, but it's also fun to just learn about other languages. So a lot of the value comes from understanding the structure of languages in general and also uh, how they differ in particular. So for me, it's of course always fun to go out and try to speak a new language and you learn a tremendous amount doing that, but you also just learn a lot by comparing languages and particular dimensions and thinking about how things could be different. Uh, mastering a language is a huge amount of work, of course, and you would do that for the pleasure of speaking the language. For the science, you can get away with a lot less. I think, I mean, what's so interesting about this for for the layman, I mean, for people listening, is that these differences in language bespeak a difference in metaphor, which bespeaks uh, really deep cultural differences. And time is a very big difference. I mean, we all know even within Western Europe, you know, super punctual cultures and sort of like more general <laughs> will be there around mm -hmm. this time kind of cultures. And another interesting cultural difference has to do with gender. And one of the things that you've done is compared the way that people see objects that are feminine in one language and masculine in another language. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this is a very silly thing that languages do. A lot of languages uh, divide nouns into grammatical categories, the kinds of languages people are most familiar with, uh, probably your listeners are most familiar with, would have masculine, feminine, sometimes neuter genders, so languages like Spanish. 
but there are also languages in the world that have lots of other different bases for gender. So, for example, some languages have 16 genders. There might be a gender for tools and another gender for hunting weapons and another gender for canines, <laughs> another gender for shiny objects. So it's not sexualized. It's not really gender, gender. Well, the word gender really just means kind or category. Actually, in American English, the word gender only came to mean sex so closely when uh, people started having to fill out lots of forms and it seemed inappropriate to put the word sex on an official form and so they used the more polite term of gender which really meant kind or type but because it was used specifically in that context it came to mean sex but linguistically it just means kind or type my favorite category that George Lakoff made famous is uh, in one language, there's a gender for women fire and dangerous things. Uh, That's one? It's one category. Like they're grouped together? Yes. Women fire and dangerous yes. things. Wow. A lot of people remember that as women fire and other dangerous things, which is not, not true. It's just women fire and dangerous things, but they happen to be in the same category. Which bespeaks some, <laughs> something for sure. So, but back to the more kind of boring European categories. Uh, so in Spanish, for example, there's masculine and feminine. In German, there's masculine, feminine, and neuter. And uh, we asked, do people actually take these genders as seriously? Do they take them as meaningful? So if the word for bridge is masculine in your language, do you see bridges as somehow more male-like? And if it's feminine in your language, do you see them as somehow, somehow more female-like? So even for important natural objects like the sun and the moon, the grammatical genders would be the opposite in Spanish and German, for example. And so in one simple experiment, we just asked Spanish and German speakers to give us three adjectives to describe different objects. And we asked them all in English. English is this nice neutral language for doing this because English doesn't have grammatical gender. And then uh, we just looked at what kinds of adjectives people gave us. And what we found was that if um, the word bridge was masculine in your language, you're more likely to give stereotypically masculine descriptions like or they're strong and they're towering and they're tall. Um, and if bridge was feminine in your language, you're more likely to give more stereotypically feminine des uh, descriptions like they're elegant or they're beautiful. Um, and to me that was striking because the differences were showing up even when people were doing it in English, which was this neutral medium. And also, even though we didn't ask people, you know, if you were to go on a date with a bridge, what kind of bridge would it be? <laughs> we just said, describe a bridge. And yet, uh, people's descriptions uh, contained gender information. And um, in studies we're doing now, we're actually looking at how quickly those emerge. So we ask you to give three adjectives. So does the gendered information start only on the third adjective when people run out of things to say, or how does it work? And we find that it starts showing up very strongly on the second adjective. So it's not the very first thing that people think of, but it's the second thing. I find myself wondering in that example whether like everybody you tested has disparate language in that way? Like if a person who's more sexist would be more likely to use gendered language like that? It's a great question. We don't know the answer to that question, but presumably you'd think that depending on what properties you associate with men and women, you would then privately associate different properties with objects as well.
it's a harder question to test, but it's a really interesting hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, what if you had, you know, if you tested only transgendered people or something? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's yeah, and it, it is interesting. And it makes one wonder, like, how do Americans then, who are not German or Spanish speakers, mm-hmm. respond on those tests? Did you do them as like a control or something? Uh, we have often asked English speakers who don't speak other gendered languages to do these kinds of tasks. And what we find is that there's some objects that have a lot of gender, cultural gender meaning, right? So you take something like a violin or a cat. Uh, and English speakers will tell you that those are very feminine things. And if you take something like a tank or a hammer, people will tell you those are very masculine things. But then for a lot of objects that aren't so clearly gendered, there's just a lot of disagreement and a lot of noise. And often people just kind of say, well, I don't really think of chairs as masculine or feminine at all. It doesn't, that question doesn't make sense to me. Whereas um, speakers of languages that have grammatical gender have very strong intuitions. They have you know, intuitions about paper clips and <laughs> armchairs and all kinds of other things that English speakers don't think of as being very gendered. And they will argue. So for example, an, an Italian speaker might say, uh, the word for armchair is so weird in German because armchairs are clearly so maternal and comforting and welcoming. And why would it be masculine uh, in German? That makes no sense. Or um, people who speak languages where paper clips are feminine uh, objected to the Microsoft paper clip that wore pants and tried to give you advice about how to write your documents. And they'd say, why is this, why is this paper clip wearing pants? It's <laughs> paper clips are clearly feminine. So the grammatical gendered languages kind of give people intuitions that go beyond some of them, maybe more shared cultural associations. What about languages that have different words for you, formal and informal? So in German, you have sie and du, in Spanish, you have usted and tu. Mm-hmm. Um, are people who, sp- I mean, do people think differently because of those kinds of differences, which we don't have in English? It's a wonderful question. Uh, the best study I know ab- about on this compared Japanese and Italian speakers. Italian, of course, also has a, a formal and formal distinction. A Japanese distinction is... Uh, more strict and it's more to do with age and social status. And uh, what the study found was that if you give people some information about a person they're corresponding with, including age information, Japanese speakers are more likely to remember that age information, especially when it's someone who's either a little bit older or a little bit younger than them than Italian speakers. So they're remembering information about people that's relevant, that's directly relevant for how you're going to address them later. But this is something that people negotiate all the time. So academics, for example, German academics have to make rules about how they're going to address their students and what happens on the day that their students graduate with a PhD and what happens when you then run into that student several years later at a conference and now they're a professor and you have this one established relationship but now you have this new established relationship. Do you have to start addressing each other differently? And some of my colleagues say that they just prefer to switch to English <laughs> because they, they can avoid that embarrassment and that uncomfortableness and just to give yourself a sense of what that would be like, you know, English used to have a you-thou distinction. Uh, it, it fell away relatively recently in English. So imagine that that got reintroduced. So thou was the informal, you was the formal. Now, starting from this moment, you have to go, and every time you're going to say you to anyone, 
you have to decide if they're going to be a you person or a thou person. That's going to be a lot of work for you to figure yeah. out <laughs> for each person. Well, and, you know, when social rules change because culture changes and political ideas about equality change, I mean, my grandmother was German, and I used to go visit her in Germany all the time, and her neighbor and best friend was a woman she'd known for years, and they called each other Z. They mm-hmm. called each other in the formal, mm-hmm. and they there was a formality, I think, that stemmed from that. Mm-hmm that had to do with their generation Mm -hmm. and had to do with that decision that they made. Yeah, a lot of it is established in specific interactions between two people. So I have a story, um, I have a a wonderful colleague, Dan Slobin uh, at Berkeley, who speaks Russian, but I'd never spoken Russian with Dan until one time we were in St. Petersburg. We were surrounded by other Russian speakers. And for the first time I addressed him in Russian, Dan is many, many years senior to me and is a giant, intellectual giant in in my field. And so to me, there's no question that I would have to address him in the formal. And as soon as he heard that, I saw this shock across his face and he recoiled and he said, don't you ever do that to me again? (laughs) You will address me in the informal because he thought of it as distancing. So I thought of it as respectful and he thought of it as distancing. And uh, for the next three days, I would just get this frisson of transgression every time I had to address him <laughs> using the informal because I kept thinking, can I really do this to Dan Slobin? <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, and I mean, is Russian a native language for you? It is, yes. And so how did you grow up? I mean, were you using the formal for people who were as close to you, for example, as this man, Dan, you're talking about? The way I grew up is that you addressed all adults with the formal except immediate family. But as a kid, that that's one of the rules, and then things change when you become an adult. Very often what happens between two people as they're getting to know each other, at some point there will be a moment where one person, usually the older person, says, can we switch now to the informal? And it's you know, kind of officially decided that you're now going to be in a different register, and then that you go from there. In German, there's a verb for that, mm-hmm. dutzen. Yes. Yeah. So... Let's talk about one more example, and that is the language of colors. We have in English pink, magenta, fuchsia, crimson, all these puce, whatever, Mm -hmm. all these different colors uh, that are related and that you could sort of put together and name of, you know, different flowers, different versions of that Mm -hmm. color. And does that make us see and distinguish more subtly because we have all those different words than somebody from a culture who has like one word for pink? So there's not a a culture that has, you know, only one color word and that color word is pink. So languages kind of develop color words in somewhat structured ways. So for example, there are some languages that have only a couple color words. They're usually light and dark or warm and cold. And if you're going to add other colors, you're going to add red and then you're going to add other basic colors. Like you can't, we haven't found a language that has only two color words in there, purple and orange, right. <laughs> for example. So there there seems to be um, some principled structure in how languages divide up the color spectrum. But there are big differences in how many basic color words languages have and also where they put the boundaries between colors. Usually people do research on the sets of what are called basic color words, which is what is the minimal set of words that you need in a language to describe colors that people can agree on, right? So there are many, many different words for blue, different kinds of blue in English, 
but uh, English speakers will still agree that all those things are blue. And so blue will then be deemed the basic word. And some languages don't have a basic word like blue. Instead, they include all greens along with the blues or they make finer distinctions. So there's no basic word that covers all the things that English speakers call blue. Instead, there is a word for light blue and a, another word for dark blue, for example. Russian. Russian does this. So in Russian, the light blues are galuboy and the dark blues are sini. And so then the question becomes, because you have to make this distinction in Russian and you don't have to make the distinction in English, are Russian speakers more trained at making distinctions between shades of blue that fall on either side of their category in Russian? Or are English speakers more trained at making distinctions between blue and green than a speaker of a language that doesn't make a distinction between blue and green? And that's what people find, is that this linguistic practice that forces you to distinguish some things and not others changes how quickly, how accurately you can make these color distinctions. What's interesting to me about that is that we've always thought as of color perception as being this very bottom-up, fast biological process. And it's certainly deeply rooted in the physiology of the human nervous system, and it's deeply rooted in the physics of light. But still, even though it's so heavily constrained by physics and physiology, still this extra dimension of language and culture plays a role in how, how we process color, even at this very, very low level. What happens when societies lose their language but retain their... I mean, here we are in, in New Mexico, right, where a lot of Indian people have lost their language in large part but kept their cultures and ways of thinking. How do you think about that? Language, of course, is one part of culture. It's one way of uh, keeping cultural ideas around for a long time. But there are lots and lots of other practices and artifacts that do uh, can do similar work. In places where people have lost their language or have only a, a tenuous connection to the language, one thing that people express is an incredible sense of loss of a connection to the stories, the songs, the ideas that are embedded in a language. Very often there are interesting bits of cosmology or understandings of time and space, understandings of history, understandings of family that are embedded in language that are lost when languages are lost. And sometimes they're rediscovered if people are able to reconnect with a language or reconstruct a language. And it's that sense of cultural loss, that sense of uh, ideas and continuity that I think people feel most strongly. And they also do seem to adapt English or other languages to fill in the gap, at least to some extent. Of course, lang you know, languages in general are human creations. The, they're tools that we shape to suit our needs, right? So to the, they, of course, influence us, but also we are the ones who are crafting them. <laughs> and so people are constantly changing language within communities, even within communities as small as two people. You know, any husband and wife have a way of talking that they use with each other, phrases and expressions and shorthand that they don't use with other people. And so you can see that process of language change and language creation in every human interaction, even, even a really small community like two people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I th sometimes think like with either partners or very close friends, you have these little subcultures of two. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. I heard a radio program once in which a Native American man was talking about the difference between English and his native language. And he said, my native language is composed entirely of verbs. I don't know how that could be true. But basically, it was a verb-based language. Mm -hmm. And 
here in English, I mean, we're sitting here in chairs and here's a sound mixer and here's a wall and things like that. Do you feel like language creates, plays a part in creating our environment and like, you know, the way we build, how materialistic we are, things like that? So certainly languages differ in how verby or nouny they are. So uh, some Native American languages are famous for having these exquisite verbs. So there will be 20 different inflectional positions on a verb that can be filled or unfilled, and verbs can be so incredibly expressive, and then you don't actually need any nouns in the sentence at all. The sentence can be just a verb. They're just fantastic systems. And one hypothesis has been that uh, as people look around the world, they, they can parse it, of course, into objects, or they can parse it into events, or they can parse it into actions. And our attention is fundamentally limited. So if, even though you could see all of those things at the same time, in fact, you're only going to see it one way or another. You're going to construe things likely you know, as a bunch of objects or as a bunch of events. And there's some indication that depending on what your language foregrounds, what your language makes most salient, that's what you're more likely, that's how you're more likely to create the world. I once asked this question of students, computer science students learning to program for the first time, and I asked them about object-oriented languages as opposed to others. And uh, some of them said things exactly the opposite of what you heard this man say on the radio. They said, object-oriented languages are most intuitive to me because the world is made of nouns. So they weren't even making a claim about their language being made of nouns. <laughs> they were making a claim about the world being made of nouns. So we, of course, take our languages as being real, as reflecting reality. And so the things that are foregrounded in the language will seem most natural uh, to us in our minds. What about the language of mathematics, which is so interesting to me because it's a universal language. People who across linguistic, whatever their language they were born and raised in, can communicate with other mathematicians. Yeah, and so, so in some ways the language of mathematics is a universal language, but even within mathematics, there are, of course, many different numerical systems that are embedded in the world's languages. So we take the decimal system, the base 10 system that we have in English, to be the natural system. But some languages have base 12 systems or base 8 systems or base 27 or base 81 what? <laughs> or base 2. And so all of these systems exist. Some languages don't have number words at all. And so as you look across the world's languages, the solutions that people have had across time for how to deal with number have been really, really different. Even in English, we have vestiges of other number systems. So we have words like dozen, that's a base 12 system. Probably we owe that to the Babylonians. We have special words for base 20, like score. So four score and seven years ago was 87 years ago. And languages like French still have these vestigial base 20 systems. So to say 87 in French, you say 420s and 7, right? 80. So we kind of go into thinking about math as if it is this God-given system. But in fact, our, the number system that we use now is a very recent human invention. So the decimal positional system was invented in India, kind of codified around 11th century. 
passed on through Arab mathematicians and was only brought to Europe by Fibonacci in the 1700s. Until then, we had Roman numerals, which is a right. completely different system and terrible for doing mental math. Right, right. How has thinking about this, I mean, this is your life work, this is your career, how has it changed you? You know, one thing that I love about doing this kind of work is that it allows me to step outside of the way that I normally think about things and ask how could things be different. So on the one hand, our languages and cultures make us so smart and so sophisticated and we get for free by learning a language, by participating in a culture, we get for free all of that conceptual work that's been done by thousands of years of generations, uh, things that are being passed down to us. Those are incredibly valuable cultural tools. On the other hand, once something is embedded in your language, it's really hard to look outside of that system and ask, how could things be different? We just kind of get entrenched into, into thinking in particular ways. So you can think of it as cultures enriches, but they also reduce cognitive entropy. We have the ability to think about things in many, many different ways, but we almost never think to look and think about how we could get out of a particular frame. And so what I love about this work is that it constantly surprises me, that I'm constantly learning about some new feature in some new language that I'm just like, what? <laughs> How can that be? Why have I never thought of it that way? Like, it just never occurred to me that it could be this way. And that's really rewarding. Lara Borditsky is a professor of cognitive science at the University of California, San Diego. And before we go, can you say how your name is in Russian? Uh, the proper way to say my given name in Russian is Kaleria Ramanovna Boroditskaya. And we know you as Lara Boroditsky. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. You've been listening to the Radio Cafe Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. If you have any questions, comments, ideas for the show, anything like that, please email me at mc at radiocafe.media. Check out our website at scienceradiocafe.org. We're on Twitter at Radio Cafe MC and at Facebook.com slash Radio Cafe. Many thanks to Steady Networks providing managed IT services and computer support for thousands of people in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You can find out more at SteadyNetworks.com and also a shout out to their terrific sister company, Dotfoil Computer Services, Dotfoil.com of Santa Fe. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.